Hello, listeners. If you've not yet done our podcast survey, please take a couple of minutes to fill it out. It will help us improve the podcast experience for you this year. You can find it online at tinyurl.com slash nknewspodcast2023. That's tinyurl.com slash nknewspodcast2023, all one word. 20 lucky people will win a free annual subscription to the NK News website for one year. So that's a great reason to go to tinyurl.com slash nknewspodcast2023 and fill in our survey. Now, on with this episode. podcast listeners i'm your host jacko zwetsluk today it is monday january 9th 2023 i am joined by a zoom by three members of the nk news and nk pro team to review some of the big news stories in and around north korea in the last month but first please leave a review and a rating about this podcast on whatever platform you use and share this episode with colleagues friends and even frenemies secondly check out nknews.org where you can find all the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking with today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the wonderful work that my fantastic colleagues put out each and every day. Thirdly, follow us all on Twitter. You can find each of our handles in the show notes, and nknews.org is a general one for the whole platform. Now, to introduce our three guests today, we have my colleagues and roundtable veterans, James Fretwell, Jongmin Kim, and Shreyas Reddy. Welcome on the show, and thanks for joining me. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Okay, James, as usual, you've put together the month in review for December 2022 that our NK Pro subscribers will have received emailed to them as a neat 39-page PDF file with 10 sections plus an executive summary and a what to expect in the month ahead. It feels like you've had a lot of material to choose from in terms of December stories and events. Can you give us a little teaser preview of what's in this month in review and how do you put it all together? Yeah, sure. So uh, December was another really massive month for North Korea. And I know I sa- I've been saying this <laughs> every month in the podcast for a while, but it, it really is true. I've been doing month in review for over two years now, and it it really does feel like these past few months, every month it seemed, there seems to be a, a bigger development. So we've we've been quite busy on the uh, on the month in review team. I'd say that the uh, the top stories for the December month in review uh, would be North Korea's new solid fuel engine test mm-hmm. and uh, Kim Jong Un's pledge to increase nuclear weapons production. Uh, North Korea's uh, North Korea sending drones across the border and South Korea's botched efforts to shoot them down and also more news on the uh, US's accusations that North Korea is providing weapons for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And luckily, I think we're going to be discussing all of those yes. issues in the podcast today. In terms of how we put it together, you know, I'm I'm very lucky to have access to the NK News team and all the wonderful reporting that uh, they do. You know, I, I have the privilege, whereas they have to, uh, you know, be very timely and report things as they happen. I, I have the privilege of just sitting down once every month, collecting everything that they've been doing and look at it in a, in a wider perspective. Okay, well, I'm sure that, uh, that Jongmin and Shreyas are feeling a little bit jealous of you right now, but let's uh, <laughs> go straight to Shreyas. You've been writing about 
North Korea's unmanned aerial vehicles or drones after five of them entered South Korea's airspace in late December. And you put together an explainer on how North Korea is developing drones into weapons of war and the various ways that it can challenge South Korea's defenses. Can you give us a brief rundown? Sure. So as we saw last month, North Korea's drones pose an interesting challenge to South Korean defenses because uh, unmanned aerial vehicles tend to be smaller and fly lower and slower than, say, a full-fledged aircraft, mm. uh, making them much harder to detect. And there are few established countermeasures to deal with these. And so for a country like North Korea, drones could prove quite useful, both for reconnaissance and for attack. Most of North, Korean drone, North Korea's drones are believed to be aimed at reconnaissance, but it has also attempted to develop combat drones capable of carrying out target attacks. And even some of its reconnaissance drones appear to have been modified to make them capable of carrying destructive payloads, which could be very dangerous for South Korea. Now, I know um, sometimes when they're painted blue, uh, they can be hard to spot from the ground with the naked eye because, you know, they blend in with the sky. And I know at least uh, a few years ago, one North Korean drone that came down was actually painted blue. Do you know if they show up in radar or other kind of detecting equipment? They certainly can show up, but there can be errors. For example, even in this case, we've been told that there were five drones, but again, estimates can vary. They can mm. also be other outlying factors, like if a flock of birds could perhaps be mistaken right. for drones. So the, it, it can be much harder to be certain about drones when you spot them on radar. And depending on the material, they might also be able to just avoid notice altogether. Right, right. Yeah, and I was, I was thinking about looking on TV the other day that uh, herons, which fly over the Korean Peninsula, they're very big. They're almost as large as drones. So I can imagine it would be quite easy for uh, something of a, the size of a heron to perhaps be mistaken for a drone on a uh, on a piece of equipment. Yeah, that's certainly quite possible. Uh, and I think you can't rule it out. There have been South Korean media reports, certainly, of things like flocks of birds or mm. balloons being mistaken in the panic that, has, that ensued after the actual drone incursion. So I think it is certainly going to be a challenge for South Korea's defenses to even spot the drones, let alone right. encounter them. And the other challenge, of course, in, in the last batch that came out over the, the DMZ in December was that none of them were brought down or captured. What do we actually know about North Korea's drone program? I mean, has North Korea publicly said or shown its drone capabilities? Do they roll them out for parades? Well, as with many other aspects of North Korea, there are a lot of unknowns when it comes to North Korea's drone program. Even the, the numbers are uncertain, but South Korea's defense ministry reportedly estimated that North Korea could have anywhere between 300 and 1,000 drones. Mm. So Pyongyang rarely shows off its drones publicly, apart from perhaps the odd drone on display. As you mentioned, military parades in 2012 and 2013, there, was, uh, there were attack drones spotted there as well as at a defense exposition in uh, October 2021. Mm -hmm. But much of what we know of North Korea's drones comes from a combination of international media reports, particularly South Korean outlets citing anonymous officials, yeah. and few drones spotted in action or which crashed in South Korea in the past decade. That said, Kim Jong-un is now evidently more upfront about his drone ambitions, apart from this very clear cross-border breach at the ruling party's uh, 8th Congress in 2021. He called for efforts to develop a reconnaissance drone capable of flying pretty much as far as South Korea's Jeju Island, said around mm. 500 kilometers. 
as well as unmanned strike equipment. Okay, so that if they're looking at uh, flying to Chejuro, then they can at least theoretically fly long distances. Can they also fly for long periods of time before returning back to base? Well, so far we haven't seen much sign of that, which is why Kim appears to be prioritizing the development of drones with a longer range. Mm-hmm. And over the past decade, we saw multiple North Korean drones crash in South Korea. After a 2017 incursion, for example, the South Korean military concluded that the drone which crashed malfunctioned on its way back to the North. Mm. However, as December's incursions show, Pyongyang now has reason to be much more confident that its drones can make it down as far as Seoul and back and could be capable of granting Kim's wish of a long-range reconnaissance drone with a little more work. Do we know how long North Korea has been working on drones? Is this just a recent thing? It's been working on it for quite a while, to be honest. So North Korea is believed to have imported its first drones in the late 1980s. And in the early 1990s, it started reverse engineering them to kickstart its own drone program. So Uh basically around three decades. During this time, it has steadily improved its capabilities, but it's still at a glacial pace. So it lags far behind more advanced nations. Right. In the uh, recent stories about Russia's war in Ukraine, we know that the Russians have bought some drones from Iran. Uh, Are there signs that North Korea recently has been buying drones from friendly nations like China and Iran? Or is it mainly, as you said, reverse engineering and trying to develop its own tech these days? Well, it has. It's been a combination of both over the last three decades. So Mm. uh, both homegrown and imports. So experts believe that it originally imported drones from China and which it learned to reverse engineer and subsequently uh, Russia and Syria in the 1990s. And many of the drones discovered in South Korea over the past decade also appear to be more recent Mm. Chinese imports or based on Chinese models. Yeah, like I said, uh, based on the original Chinese imports, it started producing the locally developed Panghyun series of reconnaissance drones Mm -hmm. in the 1990s. But at some point, it also started developing larger combat drone, the one which made its debut at the military parade in 2012, Mm. which was supposedly based on US-made Beechcraft Streaker Target UAV, uh, which it reportedly imported from the Middle East. Gosh, wow, okay. Uh, But we haven't seen those in action yet, is that correct? Uh, No, we have not. not Just at the parade, right? Could a a drone fleet be a complement or even a replacement for North Korea's air force that is aging in terms of equipment and under-resourced in terms of fuel and actual flying practice time for pilots? Certainly. Uh, a UAV fleet has many advantages that would allow it to compensate for North Korea's aging air force. For one, drones are cheaper to produce. For another, they remove the risks to pilots and are also less training intensive, as you mentioned. They're also quite versatile, with the same drones often capable of both attack and reconnaissance functions, unlike more specialized aircraft. North Korea still finds itself unable to upgrade its Soviet-era air force, partly due to costs and partly Mm. due to sanctions. So Pyongyang would certainly be keen to invest in UAVs to find new ways of gaining an aerial advantage, particularly since, as we have seen, there are few established countermeasures that countries like South Korea could employ against such systems at the moment. And so North Korea can engage in less direct forms of warfare, even against more powerful militaries using these drone capabilities. Okay, let's move over to Jongmin now to talk about these countermeasures. Uh, How did South Korea try to bring down the drones in late December? So there were five drones and four came in through the Western front line and one came in 
uh, it seems straight from Pyongyang area into Seoul. So for the four ones that came through the Western front line, South Korean military detected it through the radar and tried to shoot the 20 millimeter guns at it from the helicopter, at them from the helicopter, but they failed. And also the one that flew into Seoul metropolitan area, uh, South Korean military could not shoot it down and couldn't even fire at it because no. once they spotted them in the radar, which, which was a very brief moment, it sounded mm -hmm. like, it was already in the residential area, so they were concerned about civilian damages, so they, so they couldn't shoot at it, and that one that breached Seoul went back to Pyongyang. Right, okay, so yeah, because if you shoot up into the air, that bullet's got to come down somewhere, right? Right. A senior presidential official in a background briefing said that once they, uh, it was very difficult to detect them in the first place, but when they were in the radar, they figured out, oh, it's above an apartment complex. So they oh. decided not to shoot. And I understand that one South Korean aircraft reportedly crashed in Kangwon province after taking off. Was this an accident or had it been struck or shot down by a drone? It sounds like it was an accident. It was KA-1 aircraft and two pilots had to do an emergency they have to get out of the aircraft uh, right it seems like it was right after it scrambled so it mm -hmm. sounds like it was accident but the investigation is still going on gee that's a, a bit of an embarrassing uh, yeah mess up there what has president yun ordered the south korean military to develop to try to counteract these drones so this is an interesting part so first of all south korean president does have does not have the luxury to lose his constituency over the security issues, right? Mm. So he went for a really hawkish method, mm -hmm. going for ordering the military to not to stay at a proportional level going forward, but even overwhelmingly. So for example, if one drone comes down, South mm -hmm. Korea will be sending in two or three, which was, it sounded like it was an order that was given from the president to the military at the time. So South Korean sent the drones into North Korea to take DPRK military facilities. But for now, uh, it sounds like there are two things. One is increasing the level of and frequency of the drills related to a drone response system. So they already did an, what they called a extermination drill against the against the drones by right. using stuff like Vulcan cannons, which are two hundred millimeter and uh, short range Chumma surface to air missiles. Mm -hmm. They already did two drills after the drone incursion. And also there are a lot of um, acquisitions and development of anti-drone system that UN administration ordered the munitions officials to work on, including uh, soft kill capabilities and the hard kill capabilities. Hard kill capabilities, it seems like they're referring to uh, physical methods of shooting down or intercepting the drones. And the soft kill capabilities, it seems like they're referring to non-kinetic or non-physical capabilities such as jamming the, the, right. the North Korean uh, launch systems. Because there's two different things. You can, you can either jam the remote control signal that's coming from the base in North Korea, or you can try and, and disrupt the actual stuff that's inside the drone, disrupt the motor or disrupt the guidance system so that it uh, goes off course or, or comes down. Right. Yeah. For the soft kill capabilities, it seems like it's especially because if drones enter the residential areas, it will be very dangerous to sh actually shoot them down. Right. And also, Sharis pointed out that non-physical and non-kinetic would be technically different, but it sounds like unit administration is sort of mixing those two ideas up. Non-kinetic is would include something like laser weapon, which oh. is... Um, not kinetic, but a physical attack against North Korean drones, right. uh, which is different from jamming. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the idea of uh, using a large net 
Uh, this has been used in the past to catch space capsules returning to Earth from outside the atmosphere. Uh, anyone who's curious, have a look on YouTube for the uh, video with the title, The Last Bucket Catch. That would be, I think, you know, nets would be a great idea. I've also heard that in some countries, like in the Netherlands, they train birds of prey, like eagles or hawks, to uh, to knock drones out of the air if they come near airport areas or other uh, sensitive uh, installations. And of course, outside of urban areas where it is possible to shoot, South Korea has a, a good team of, uh, of skeet shooters, some of whom won a medal at the last <laughs> Asian Games. So they're trained at shooting small moving objects out of the sky. I think they could uh, potentially be uh, well used in this instance. I mean, uh, that reminds me, I think uh, there were a lot of military background briefings and just on record briefings with the defense ministry correspondents who are one of the fiercest reporters in South Korea. They actually made a good point about how unit administration is obsessing too much about offensive weapons against drills mm. when what South Korea really needs is detecting radar and defense system. The thing about shooting them down is that it's very difficult to catch them on radar and match it with the what the pilot's actually seeing when they are pointing the gun or whatever weapons they want to intercept the drones with at the target. So it yeah. would be difficult without a better radar system in South Korea. Yeah, yeah. I, I would think that um, given that South Korea is reasonably effective at uh, jamming North Korean radio and television signals from coming across the demilitarized zone and has been mm. for, for decades, uh, that the jamming would be one of the first areas that would be tried. I, I wonder why that's not more successful. Uh, anyone have any idea about that? No? Okay, well, hopefully we'll get an expert about that on the show one day. Um, so at first, uh, going back to this incursion in late, late December, at first the South Korean military claimed that none of the North Korean drones had intruded the no-fly zone near the presidential office in Yongsan, where President Yoon is based. And then after a few days, it had to make an embarrassing about-face and admit that this had in fact happened. Tell us about that, Chongming. Okay, this was a very emotional development yeah. uh, from the defense ministry, especially when the situation started on December 26, 27, when the reporters were first briefed about this, there were actually one lawmaker who, Kim Byung-ju, a former four-star and who was a deputy commander of the Combined Forces Command, mm. USROK, um, he first pointed out that looking at the map that the JCS Joint Chief of Staff submitted to the Defense Committee of the National Assembly, he suggested that it is possible that the P-73 no-fly zone, which circles the Yongsan area, could have been breached. And then afterwards, reporters also picked up on that story and made headlines with it. And then a very rare move from the defense ministry and the JCS, they sent out a text message, a very short one, which sounded pretty annoyed. They uh. said, uh, we notify you that there was no such thing as a breach of P-73. Uh -oh. I think that was December 29th or something. And then yeah. after a few days, they did, they continued the investigation of the radar at the time and they mm -hmm. figured out, oh, there's one trail. And then they figured out there were more trails detected in other computers and radars as well. So by January 3rd, the president was briefed that actually the P73 was breached. And then the next day on January 4th, the reporters were also briefed about it. Everyone was mad. But they didn't do an on-record one. They just did a background one. And then after that, Gee. yeah, it became very much politicized. And the presidential office even did another separate, very rare evening briefing, trying to push back on how this was a security breach. And even the military officials were like, reporters were asking, can we say it, it was near Yongsan because it's just 3.7 kilometers radius? And they were like, no, no, it's not near Yongsan or near City Hall. It's just very brief breach of the P-73. But come on, it's 3.7 kilometers. Mm. Yeah, it became quite politically charged. I saw in the news there that there were 
even allegations of spying or or yeah. uh, information exchange between North Korea and the uh, the opposition Democratic Party. Tell us a little bit about what the heck that was all about. Yeah, that was very weird. I don't think that was a smart uh, strategy for the presidential office to go for, honestly. Kim Byung-ju, the lawmaker. Um, right, who you said was a former general, right? Former four-star general. Okay, so um, not just a general, he's a four-star general. Yeah, is he's he a four-star. Is he from the Minju Democrat Party? Yeah, he's a Democratic Party Defense Committee lawmaker. And what okay. he did was that he overlaid two different sets of map that he knew and they, he figured out and made a claim. And then what the presidential office late night said, said was that a certain Democratic Party lawmaker mm -hmm. uh, knew about the breach even before our military or the JCS or the defense ministry knew about it. Where did you get the information? Did you get it from the enemy? Oh, um, and one military official before admitting the P-73 breach even alleged that it's an act of benefiting the enemy. So it became a very politicized debate. Wow, that uh, that's ugly stuff there. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, now, why did South Korea's uh, military do so poorly in responding to the drone incursion? President Yoon blamed his predecessor, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He said that there were no trainings co conducted. He said explicitly no training done regarding drones for the past five years, he claimed. And mm. then also there were, I, I just wanted to mention that even if there were training drones, first of all, for whatever countries that are dealing with such drones, it's just very difficult to um, handle them, especially they, when they are already in the residential area. But yeah, you blamed the predecessor, Boon administration. Now, some of the NK News stories of late December actually showed some photographs of the South Korean military officers training with drones in 2019. So clearly there was work going on here to build up drone capabilities. Was was that insufficient in the view of the, of the current Yoon administration or was South Korea just unlucky? So first of all, I think regarding Yoon's remark about how there was no training, quote unquote, uh, regarding drones, I think it was part of a domestic, uh, I think he was saying that I didn't want the domestic audience to shift the blame a little bit. And then yeah. Moon himself also told someone and who told the reporters that uh, he thinks that what Yoon used was actually what was all created during the Moon administration. So there was a little bit of a tug of war going on between the two regarding who is to credit for the actual system. Yeah. Um, and there was actually a drone unit that was established in 2018 September, which was right after the inter-Korean military agreement was signed. And there were some trainings that went on even until like March or April 2022. That it's, so it's not like nothing was going on. Right. But when Yoon was saying he wants to establish a new drone unit, I think he means uh, something that incorporates all army and the air force and the navy to right. commit to a a combined sort of way of drone related mm. capability training gee wow that anyway it's an amazing story and i'm sure there will be lots of uh, developments on that this year so let's uh, keep watching that james let's talk about one of the stories from the or one of the themes in the month in review uh, in the middle of december north korea tested a new solid fuel rocket engine this was a, a ground-based test rather than a rocket launch. What happened and what does it mean, James? So, yes, yeah, as, as you said, North Korea tested this really massive uh, solid fuel engine for the first time at a new horizontal engine test stand as well in, uh, in mid-December. According to state media reporting, this provided a good guarantee over the development of a new type strategic weapon system as part of the top five 
priority tasks concerning strategic weapons outlined at the big Parsi Congress in January 2021. Now, this Parsi Congress that they're referring to was uh, was a really huge event where uh, Kim Jong-un detailed his longer-term plans for the country's missile development over the upcoming years. And in that speech, he referred to the development of solid-fuel engine-propelled intercontinental underwater and ground ballistic rockets so um the engine That's test a lot of bullet in points december there. yeah the the engine test in uh, in december is is likely linked to uh these plans for a, a solid fuel icbm remind us what the benefit of solid fuel is over liquid fuel when you're sending a rocket into the air it's a good question because north korea already um seems to have the ability to uh strike the continental us with a with a long range missile right so like mm. the um like the Hwasong 17 yep. that was tested this year or even you know the the Hwasong 14s and 15s that were tested in 2017 but these were all liquid fuel missiles and the advantage of a solid fuel missile is that uh, since it's made in a uh, in like a fueled state it doesn't have to take uh, as long to prepare to launch and so therefore if north korea was preparing to launch a solid fuel ICBM, the US and South Korea would have less time to react. Mm, okay. Now, this uh, motor that was tested uh, last, uh, well, in the middle of December, in what type of missiles could that potentially be used? So it could be used for either land or underwater. It's not clear exactly uh, which particular missile it will be used for, mm -hmm. um, since all of the solid fuel Pukuksong uh, series of missiles that North Korea has tested so far uh, mm. seem to be too small. And this was a really, really big engine. Mm. And there are also a, a number of difficulties with using uh, engines this big. It's not just as simple as, you know, making a bigger version of the smaller solid fuel missile that you've already tested. North Korea is going to um, have to ensure that the, the motor's casing is strong enough to withstand the tremendous amount of pressure right. uh, without being too heavy as well. Now, Kim Jong-un, the leader, was there on hand uh, to give on-the-spot guidance on the day of the rocket motor test, wasn't he? He was indeed. Kim Jong-un doesn't uh, attend all weapons tests or mm -hmm. all weapons-related tests, or at least state media doesn't report on them. Perhaps this is, you know, kind of an attempt to make them feel more routine right so i mean when when south korea or the us do something involving the military it doesn't mean that uh you know joe biden's going to show up necessarily right it's just right. something that the the us military does is because it's a, it's a normal military and so is is north korea's uh, that might be what state media mm. is uh, is going for but kim does show up for the big tests and i think that's to really stress uh, North Korea's achievements, what it's trying to promote to both the domestic and the international audience, yeah. while also, you know, acting as some kind of morale booster, I suppose, for all the uh, the weapons developers that he meets and greets during these visits. Did he bring his daughter to work that day? He didn't bring his daughter to work that day, no. But um, mm. Jue, his, his child daughter, who was uh, first revealed to the world, a long-range missile launch in, in November did show up at another weapons-related mm. event uh, later in December. Right, yes. Uh, now, on a related note, North Korea had its six-day party plenum starting on December 26th. 
During this plenum, a pledge was made to develop, quote, another new intercontinental ballistic missile system with rapid nuclear counterattack ability, end quote. So first of all, just remind our listeners of what a plenum is, is and how often North Korea holds them and, and why they're important. So a plenum is a massive meeting of hundreds of top officials from the ruling Workers' Party of Korea, which is, they rule North Korea. There are, you know, supposedly other parties, but but this is the, uh, this is the ruling regime, basically. And at the plenums, Kim Jong-un will uh, detail key policy initiatives and um, make some changes in the top leadership as mm -hmm. well. So North Korea doesn't just hold these meetings at the end of the year. It also holds them during the year as well. Um, mm -hmm. But the ones at the end of the year do tend to be the ones that really grab the headlines. And that's because while um, Kim Jong-un, at the beginning of his rule, he revived his grandfather's tradition of delivering a New Year's speech that would detail North Korea's plans for the year ahead. He now seems to have replaced this uh, big New Year's speech with a big speech at one of these uh, party gatherings instead. Mm. And what about this pledge that he made at this plenum about uh, weaponry and rapid counterattack and, and missile systems? What should we make of that? Well, you know, again, the, the, the rapid nuclear counterattack ability likely refers to how you can launch solid fuel ICBMs more quickly than oh. liquid fueled ones. So uh, the pledge indicates that this weapon, this engine is, is going to be one of North Korea's main focuses in the year ahead. Now, Kim Jong-un also said that he will exponentially increase nuclear weapons production in 2023. Is that realistic? Exponentially increase? Uh, I think it is. Uh, North Korea's economy, you know, has been suffering since it's closed its borders in response to COVID-19. So that, you know, has prompted a lot of people to ask, how on earth mm. is North Korea paying for all these missiles? Because it launched more missiles than, than ever before in yeah. 2022. And that is the question, I suppose. It's not just a good question, it's the question. No one quite knows exactly for sure. But the main thing to note is that North Korea obviously prioritizes its uh, weapons program above all else. So, um, you know, if they start to run low on resources, it's not going to be the military and the missile developers that suffer, but other sectors of the country and ordinary people. Mm, yes. Now, there was a a photograph of Kim Jong-un and his daughter inspecting at least 26 unassembled Hwasong-12 intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Uh, this is, as you alluded to just a moment ago, a sign that North Korea really is committing a lot of resources to building these missiles rather than other areas of its economy, isn't it? Absolutely. It's um, That photo is the largest number of intermediate-range ballistic missiles that North Korea has shown in one place even more than at military parades. And uh, these weapons in particular, the Hwasong 12s, they uh, put the US territory of Guam within range, uh, which is a very important location militarily for the US, of course. Uh, now, that going back to the rocket that was the, the motor that was tested uh, in the middle of uh, December, could that motor be used on the Hwasong 12 or is the size wrong? The Hwasong-12 is a uh, liquid field, so that's part ah. of the liquid field. So it's only, it's only good for liquid field. Okay, all right. Does this all suggest that 2023 is to be a year of aggressive confrontation by North Korea against South Korea, Japan, and the, and the United States, James? Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. There are no signs that talks are around the corner. Mm. You know, I suppose some people, maybe they were waiting for Kim Jong-un's end of year speech. He would, he'd say something like he did in 2018, you know, that he was going to attend the Pyeongchang Olympics and, and turn things around from fire and fury to to peace and love on the peninsula. Hugs and hamburgers. Yes, but uh, there, there's no signs that that's happening. Of course, you know, North Korea is full of surprises, so yeah. you never know, but there are no signs of this happening. On the other side of things, though, um, you know, North Korea is going to keep getting stronger and stronger, yes, mm-hmm. but the uh, Yoon Song-yeol administration in South Korea really does appear determined to uh, mend relations with Japan that kind of fell apart Mm. uh, under the previous government. So while North Korea is going to keep getting stronger and stronger, the relationship, the security ties between the US and its allies in the region are also going to get stronger in response. Okay, thank you, James. All right, we're going to go back to Jongmin now because you've got to leave this podcast early. So Jongmin, President Yoon has talked recently about retaliating and punishing any acts of provocation by North Korea and about bracing for battle or war with North Korea or even an expansion or escalation into a battle or war. Now, these kinds of wordings sound like they come from the, the era of around 2010 when Im Yong bak was president. Why are we hearing them again now and why are they controversial? So first of all, it's controversial because he is even stepping one step further than where what Im Young-bak did at the time. There mm. were a big controversy when the Yampyeong and Chonan incidents happened. They, he, there were a lot of controversy whether or not to allow the military to expand or escalate into an actual active battle or war of Hakjan. And that word came into being again under Yoon, but it's more like Yoon is, uh, he doesn't shy away from asking and ordering military officials to race for an actual battle, which is which can be counted as this is problematic because if he says this, this will come down as a guideline to a lower level to lower level military officials and actual soldiers. And you know that inter-Korean accidental conflicts, it, it just happens in the heat of the moment. And, and when there are guidelines to brace for an actual active battle, it's likely that they will head towards um, that direction. So that's why it's becoming more and more controversial that he's ordering that publicly. And he does have a lot of um, uh, advisors and people working for him who did work in the Im Young Bak administration. Exactly. So is he just sort of getting um, some no- notes from Lee Myung Bak's playbook in a way? And, yeah, in a, in a way. So yeah. we can see that the wordings are coming from the MB era yeah. um, playbook. But he, like I said, he's going a step forward to show, yeah. to show the domestic constituency that he's a unyielding powerful uh, leadership and charismatic leader against North Korean threat and this mm. these wordings all came amid all the controversy regarding South Korean military failing to shoot down the drone uh, that that intruded on South Korean airspace. Now you reported that a senior presidential official said President Yoon ordered the South Korean military to send up two or three drones north of the demilitarized zone as part of a corresponding measure. This sounds like a, a call in response in which North Korea is really leading the dance. Uh, and retired Lieutenant General and repeated guest on the NK News podcast, John Bomb, former commander of the ROC Special Warfare Command, said to you that an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a dangerous policy. What are the risks here? Well, like General Chan pointed out, it first of all, it, it risks South Korea also breaching the armistice and the agreements on its own right. Mm. And although sometimes self-defense is something that is guaranteed, uh, for South Koreans to choose its own path, uh, barring General Chun's words, 
it risks uh, South Korea losing the moral high ground when it comes to breaching and suspending effects and scrapping the agreements that they made with North Korea. And also, uh, when it comes to corresponding measure and proportionality, the principle of proportionality, it sounds like they're going further than just that. And when we look at the actual wordings that you news reportedly, he said something like, 우리도 두 개, 세개 더 보내, which is, they sent one, send two or three more. It sounds like uh, like a very a simple tit-for-tat tit logic, right. but at the border, it's very easy for things to escalate in a way that the administration leader does not expect it to happen. So yeah. this risks a lot of things. So risks of miscalculation and, uh, and, and mistakes being made. Right, and actual casualties might happen yeah. along the line, right? Yeah. What are other ways that South Korea could respond to drone incursions and missile launches and other bad behavior by North Korea that, that don't necessarily lead to this tit-for-tat response? Well, this is a difficult question, right? It, during the previous administration, the the criticism against the Moon administration was that South Korea is pulling back the punches mm -hmm. uh, against North Korea. Um, I think just staying at the level of proportionality at least would be helpful because South Korea wasn't, wouldn't be risking losing the moral high ground and it would be something easily justifiable by the defense ministry. But something like, for example, during one of the missile launches last year, there was a time when North Korea launched eight missiles and U.S. South Korean forces also launched eight missiles. Yeah. When they are doing that, uh, if they choose to do that, I think what's necessary at least is to explain why it's needed to show that we have similar level of capabilities that we are able to respond to. Or what South Korean military could either do is rather than responding, responding in a hot-headed sort of rhetoric, mm -hmm. uh, they could just repeat a very a well-practiced press guidelines where they say North Korea something something is against uh, UN Security Council's resolutions. Yeah. Uh, this is provocation that threatens the the peace on the peninsula, so on and so forth. I know it's lame; it's not good for headlines, but it's much better for risk management while increasing the level of training behind the doors, so that mm. the military is actually ready to respond if and when uh, such occasion occurs where South Korean military has to go there and respond to. What about going back to what uh, President Pat Gunhair did of uh, putting up the loudspeakers and sending propaganda over the uh, the demilitarized zone? Well, there has been increased noise about that in the past week, especially after South Korean president uh, ordered the military and the defense officials, uh, security officials, to review the idea of suspending the 2018 Comprehensive Military Agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, that in and of itself cannot allow loudspeakers to resume. We have to amend a little bit of our um, Inter-Korean Cooperation Act in the legal system and also some part uh -huh. in other declarations that were made during the 2018, but they were not passed by the National Assembly anyway, so it mm. would be President's decision whether or not to do that. Yeah. It's been known that North Korea really hates it, and it might yeah. work as a PSYOP, but then it, it seems like the administration is trading very, very carefully when it comes to that, because mm. reporters ask the presidential office multiple times whether or not they are trying to resume that, but they always ditch the question. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, what is South Korea's so-called three-axis defense system? Right, it's a three-axis. It's one is kill chain, the first one, which is to when, when South Korea sees a sign of imminent attack against South Korea, they will either aim for the military base or the leadership, which probably mean Pyongyang, to prevent it altogether from missile 
to be launched towards South Korea. And the, mm -hmm. if that fails, if the missile already flew, there would be Korea Air and Missile Defense System, which is uh, KAMD, which will be trying to intercept the projectile that has already flown, which would be very difficult under South Korea's current air and defense capabilities, hence South Korea aiming for something like Iron Dome or LSAM, longer, longer range surface to air missile system. Mm. And the finally, uh, Korea massive and punish massive punishment retaliation KMPR is the last phase where if and when North Korea actually succeeds in a attack against the South Korean territory, South Korea will show that um, we're capable of a second strike showing an actual attack against North Korean territory as a punishment. And these all come together uh, when South Korea is testing weapon systems to show that we actually do have the capability for retaliation. But in recent weeks, it was problematic but because Yoon, President Yoon has been mixing wordings from these all three. And when mm. he was talking about kill chain, preemptive strike, which is something that he just repeatedly said since his, even when he was still a presidential candidate, he was using it in a mix with punishing and retaliating to any North Korean provocations yeah. without fearing North Korea's nuclear weapons. But these mix of messages from the different parts of the Axis system, I think it gives North Korea very mixed, very confusing mm. um, signals. It sounds like President Yoon hasn't read the briefing papers clearly. Um, <laughs> maybe he wants to show, maybe he wants to prioritize the punishment retaliation part a little more. Well, let's hope we don't have to see any of those things uh, actually in action this year uh, or any year in the future. Uh, thank you very much, Jongmin. I know you've got to go early, so we'll uh, let you sign off for now. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jongmin. Thank you, Jacko. For our listeners, about the situation that can go really, really long when things escalate, such as uh, South Korea doing a preemptive strike against North Korea, we did a prediction piece for 2023, including a lot of black swan events that we really hope wouldn't happen, but may happen with a remote possibility. So check it out. Oh, can you give us the title of that? Oh, you can just check predictions in ah. prediction, 2023 prediction. Okay, at nknews.org. Thanks very much, Jongmin. Thank you. Okay, Shreyas, let's turn to Russia's invasion of and war against Ukraine, and in particular, the Wagner Group, a private paramilitary organization reported to have close ties to the Kremlin. We've heard a few times now that Washington, D.C. suspects North Korea is selling weaponry and ammunition to Russia. Uh, why would Moscow try to get hardware from North Korea through the Wagner Group rather than official state channels? What, what's to be gained by doing it this way? Well, there was certainly a bit of surprise uh, among North Korea watchers in particular when the U.S. claimed that Pyongyang was selling arms to uh, Russia's Wagner Group for the Ukraine war, particularly given the private military contractor's formidable reputation as Moscow's agent in wars in Ukraine, mm. Africa, and elsewhere. But there are a lot of advantages for Russia to go through Wagner, which is uh, in reality more an informal network than an actual legal company. And so it offers the Kremlin plausible deniability. Mm -hmm. Experts... although, although i got to interrupt there, it, it does seem yeah. less and less plausible over time, doesn't it? I mean, well, uh, you certainly, but uh, they've been able to get around it in the past. And one of the adv other advantages uh, Wagner offers, according to experts, is that it has a history of pulling off shady deals, mm. uh, which uh, would certainly come in very handy when it comes to that plausible deniability. And when trying to source weapons from North Korea, given that both Wagner and Pyongyang are subject to international sanctions, given the group's extensive activities, some have asked why it would even need North Korean munitions, which mm. aren't 
all that advanced, to be honest. Mm. But experts point out that when one digs a little deeper, Wagner is itself equipped with outdated weapons, yeah. uh, often Soviet-era munitions or something a generation before the uh, Russian army's equipment. And North Korea's ability to produce those kinds of munitions in large quantities makes it the ideal supplier for a group like Wagner. Is there already publicly available evidence yet about what North Korea has sold to Wagner Group or indeed anybody in Russia? Well, Washington has been claiming since September that North Korea is selling munitions to Russia and now Wagner Group for the Ukraine war. But so far, it has not really released any evidence publicly regarding these allegations. Experts monitoring weapons being used in the war say that they have yet to see North Korean arms in use in Ukraine, casting doubt on these claims, but have also suggested that North Korea does have a lot to offer on this front if it comes to it. But U.S. officials did say in December when they made these Wagner claims that Washington will share information on the Wagner shipments with the U.N. Security Council's sanction implementation committee in future meetings. So perhaps we may learn more soon. Well, what kind of stuff is it suspected of selling? Is this uh, guns and bullets or uh, rocket-pelled grenade launchers or uh, bazookas, missiles? Uh, well, according to the U.S., North Korea is selling they, what they describe as infantry rockets and missiles, but they didn't. They did not really give further details about mm. what this means. Experts say this could perhaps involve rocket-propelled grenades. Yeah. And in the past, they have also pointed to North Korea's ability to develop specific calibers of artillery shells that could suit Russia's needs and particularly uh, Wagner's needs, given its Soviet-era and outdated Russian equipment. Now, North Korea is a long way from the front line uh, in the east of Ukraine. Would this stuff be brought over by train or, or flown in from North Korea? It, it, it's a long way to go, I, I guess is what I'm saying here. Yeah, I, and I think it is certainly there are as many questions about the how as there are about what North Korea could be providing. Yeah. In the US, in previous statements, suggested that North Korea may be sending arms to Russia through shipments, essentially passing them through the Middle East and Africa. And so that's something that the U.S. has floated. Other than that... Which would be a breach of of all U.N. sanctions, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think from both sides, Wagner as well as as North Korea, they're certainly not in a position to be trading arms openly like that. Right. So it it could be... I mean, if that ship were were found uh, passing through the Suez Canal, it could be impounded by by Egypt. It could be impounded by pretty much any nation it passes through or near, couldn't it? Absolutely. Now, obviously, the thing is, we haven't yet seen clear evidence of this. Perhaps you can always say that there might be suspicious North Korean maritime activity, but that does not necessarily point to arms uh, Mm -hmm. specifically. So I think hopefully we'll get to see more details on yeah. that front soon. Another theory that some people were floating, and I think Japanese media uh, in shortly before the US Wagner revelation, Japanese media reported that a train was spotted passing over into Russia, and certainly we've seen satellite imagery of trains passing between mm. North Korea and Russia. The Japanese media reports claim that this was an arms shipment, but again, there's no clear evidence for this, and North Korea did issue a pretty strong a staunch denial to that. You can take it with a grain of salt, but yeah. at the very least, we haven't yet seen any proof of that either. 
Now, is there past precedent for North Korea selling arms and munitions to shady players and, and non-state actors? I'm thinking about the uh, the documentary The Mole, whose director I interviewed a couple of years ago in this podcast. Absolutely. The, the Mole, as you point out, it featured an undercover operation which exposed the shady arms deals to North Korea through third parties, as well as uh, representatives in other countries with close ties to Pyongyang. And that is obviously a very recent example where we got to see the mechanics of how these how such deals could work. But North Korea has a much longer history of selling arms around the world, going all the way back to its founding leader, Kim Il-sung, under whom there was of more of an ideological bent to their arms sales, as under him they prioritize sales to independence movements, communist allies, other members of the non-aligned movement that yeah. North Korea favored at that time. But once his son Kim Jong-il became much more influential, Pyongyang began to sell arms more to earn hard currency in general for the ruling party and leadership, mm -hmm. selling mostly small arms such as handguns and Kalashnikov rifles to in, uh, third parties. They also provided other services such as building tunnels for groups in the Middle East such as Hamas and Hezbollah. Mm. So clearly, at some point, they became much uh, less discriminate and uh, discriminating in how whom they sold their uh, weapons to. And in recent years, given North Korea's current economic problems, they're definitely much more likely to be uh, keen to earn cash through such deals. And they're more than capable of carrying out these activities despite sanctions as right. we have seen with their missile development as well and arms yeah. trade in general. If anyone wants to go back and listen to my interview with the mole director Mads Brugger, uh, that was back in October 2020, you can find episode 151, 151 of the NK News podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Shreyas. Uh, keep watching that story. Uh, James, returning to you, uh, North Korea has long wanted to have an eye in the sky over South Korea, and it may be one step closer to getting that wish with a mid-December test of a rocket that could launch a reconnaissance satellite. Tell us more. Yes, goodness me, this was just uh, yeah, another in a series of really big military developments in December. Well, uh, I guess, as you said, North Korea launched a, a rocket and released some pictures that it, it took above Seoul from the camera that it sent up. So state media said that this test means that it uh, has now passed the final hurdle towards getting uh, preparations for its uh, military recon satellite done by April 2023 this year, which was, this was uh, the, the military recon satellites was another one of Kim Jong-un's really uh, big aims at the 2021 Party Congress that I mentioned earlier. Mm. Tell us a bit more about those photographs that uh, North Korea released of Seoul and Incheon without naming the cities. Were they great quality photos? Um, they were not particularly good quality photos, no. State media said that they were taken with a 20 meter resolution camera. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can even get uh, better images of the peninsula from commercial providers, actually. So, North Korea could save its money and buy better quality images from a commercial provider of Seoul and Incheon if it wanted to. <laughs> well, if you look at it like that, yes, in, in this circumstance. But, um, you know, interestingly, so a lot of media outlets pointed this out, that the pictures weren't particularly good yeah. quality. And this prompted a response from Kim Jong-un's 
famous sister, oh. Kim Yo-jong, another statement, uh, basically saying that, you know, what, what, what's the point of us sending a really expensive camera mm -hmm. uh, up into space just for a one-off test? Uh, so that's North Korea's position. Yeah. But I think it looked a bit strange to uh, a lot of observers. You know, why would you make uh, such a big deal about this test and publish these photos uh, if they're going to be such low quality? But um, yeah, ultimately, I guess North Korea would be using much higher quality cameras when it sends up the real thing. Okay, so to clarify here, th these photographs were not taken by the actual military reconnaissance satellite that North Korea is talking about launching before April this year, but rather a, a test satellite. Is that right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Sort of a, a, a you, you, like a like a disposable coffee cup, use once and then discard. It's a, a satellite that was sent outside Earth's atmosphere, put in space by a rocket, uh, and then took a photograph and transmitted it back to Earth using some transmission system. Is that basically right? Right. Yeah, that's what uh, state media uh, reports are saying. Okay, so presumably uh, the real thing, when it, if and when it does get that up into space before April this year, could make better quality pictures at a higher resolution, right? In theory. Yes, yeah, that will be the the idea. Yeah, North Korea's reasoning, I guess, according to Kim Yo-jong, yeah, why why spend all this money on a super yeah. expensive camera if we're just going to use it once? Right. Now, Kim Jong-un at the uh, end of year party plenum that we discussed earlier reiterated plans to launch North Korea's first military reconnaissance satellite very soon. Why does it want this? Why the uh, the fuss about getting this? So, uh, of course, a satellite is going to provide you uh, with more information on what your enemies are doing. And that's going to mean that North Korea, in the event of a conflict, is going to be more easily able to attack its targets and verify that it destroyed them. Mm -hmm. So is that necessarily a sign that North Korea no longer has good networks of spies here to get, take photographs and, and other important sensitive information and send them back to North Korea? Or is, is that totally irrelevant? I, yeah, I don't think they're necessarily uh, connected in that sense. I think it's going to be uh, much more useful for North Korea to be able to have a good bird's eye view of what's happening uh, mm. in South Korea through a, a recon satellite. And is South Korea concerned by this? You know, South Korea is definitely going to be concerned about this for the reasons that I mentioned. However, you know, in, in some sense, I mean, no one's going to come out and say this, I suppose, but um, North Korea's satellites could have a stabilizing effect even, since if it feels more confident that the US and South Korea aren't preparing an attack, um, through information that it receives from a recon satellite, then it's going to be less likely to react to something that it's, it suspects could be an attack, um, but in fact isn't. And, uh, you know, it could, re it could react uh, to that misinformation with an attack of its own. And of course, that's, uh, you know, one of the scenarios people obviously, um, you know, North Korea commentators we, we're often seeing lots of missile launches, lots of military drills, but very rarely do we do we see um, each side firing at each other, right? But it's one of the kind of uh, the worst case scenarios that could spark another really big conflict on the peninsula is uh, one side conducting a strike on the other based mm. on bad information.
Okay, well, all right, that's what we're going to have to leave it for today. Thank you very much, James Fretwell and Shreyas Reddy for joining me on the podcast and come back again next month for a January month in review wrap-up. Thanks very much, Jackie. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, a business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Uh, thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.